Let's continue our worship of the Lord as we go to him. Father, we exalt you today in this place right now. Our eyes are upon you, O Lord. And we ask now as, as we wait for you, we trust you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word. Help us, Lord, to see anew and afresh who you really are. You're a God who's worthy of praise. You're a God who's so quick to forgive. You're a God who accepts our repentance. We thank you for these things. And, Lord, help us to be more, uh, now more than ever before, convinced of these truths. So, Lord, we pray that you would lead us, guide us. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher as we open up this word. Thank you for what you will do in Jesus' name. Amen. As I begin our time in God's word this morning, I want to say something that I can guarantee you you've never, ever heard from the pulpit before. I'm going to borrow a quote from a fellow pastor, John Alexander. Here's what he says. Sin is the best news there is. See, I told you. (laughs) If nothing else, now you can say, now I've heard it all. (laughs) and I've heard everything. But why would a pastor say these words? Pastor Alexander continues. With sin, there's a way out. You cannot repent of generic problems or psychological flaws or even, you know, abuse that was heaped up on you when you were a kid by your parents. You're stuck with that. But you can repent of sin. Repentance from sin are the only grounds for hope and joy, the grounds for reconciled, joyful relationships. And I will add relationships first between the Lord and us and also between us and others. Now, we all know this to be true. See, we live in a fallen world. We've all sinned against one another, and others have sinned against us. We have broken relationships, bitterness, wounded souls, gaping holes in the heart. Who wants to live like that? And even though no one wants to live life as walking wounded, sometimes people need a little incentive to help them get things right. For some, though, it just kind of, feels good, doesn't it, to have the chip on the shoulder, ready to strike back at any moment at anybody who would offend them. For others, they've lived with the pain for so long they really don't know what it's like to not have that pain. For others, they desire reconciliation. They are aware that the process will probably be painful, and so they put it off till later. Consider the story of William the refrigerator Perry, as told in the Chicago Tribune way back in the day, 2007. Perry was a powerful defensive lineman for the Chicago Bears when they won the Super Bowl back in 1985. If you are football fans, you kind of know what I'm talking about. His nickname fits him well because he was big and wide. And Perry was also a very friendly man with a wide grin. And unfortunately for his grin, though, As a mammoth man playing in the tough world of football trenches, he apparently was afraid of something. It was the dentist. So afraid that he did not go to the dentist for 20 years. (laughs) Even though his teeth and gums hurt terribly, even though his teeth began falling out, and eventually he lost half of his teeth, and some of them he pulled out by himself, and his gums suffered chronic infection. This man was hurting. And finally, when he neared his 45th birthday, 
Perry did go to a dentist who pulled out all of his remaining teeth, inserted screws into his jaws, implanted new teeth, all of which would have cost him $60,000, would have, except for the dentist donated the procedure. (laughs) Apparently, he wanted the free publicity, according to the article. When asked about what life was like post-dentist, William Perry said this, it's unbelievable, and I love them. I just got tired of my mouth hurting all the time. You think? You know, some people say that playing football kind of affects your brain. And I'm thinking with William Perry, that might be the case. Well, apparently, Perry's pain became greater than his fear. And we might say he came to a census and overcame his fear and got her done. But how much pain would the fridge have avoided if he would have endured just a little pain? and gone to see the dentist at year one rather than waiting for year 20. See, I can resonate with this story because I need some work done on my mouth too. I need a crown and I need a, I need a filling, and it's going to both happen on Tuesday. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it's going to, yes, right, right. So my wallet's going to be a little bit lighter, but, you know, I think I need to bite the bullet and get her done too. Well, our passage for today, you might have guessed, we're going to talk about repentance. And how beautiful it is. Repentance really is a beautiful thing. And so in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 10, and page 191 in your pew Bible if you need that number. So pull it out right now if you you need to. Moses is going to give Israel a peek into their future. If you were here last week, you remember how the Lord asked the people to give him their heart. Chapter 29 was a summary statement of the covenant that Yahweh was going to renew with Israel. And Moses reminded the people of how good the Lord had been to them, how he provided for them. And what he wanted most from Israel was their heart. The Lord wanted Israel to declare him as their treasure. You know, Jesus said the truth when he said, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. But if you remember, the Lord gave his people a stern, dire, Warning in Deuteronomy 29, 18 through 21. Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord your God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in the book will settle upon him. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in the book of the law. And as an aside, I remember telling you that that I'm convinced that giving one's heart to the Lord is the heart of the issue for all people, for all time. The Lord desires a warm, obedient, childlike relationship with his people. Like in a close family with sons and daughters giving honor to mom and dad and fully trusting what dad especially would have to say to the kids. And when he gives something to the kids to do, right away they say, You got it, Dad. We love you. We want to please you. As we know, the Lord tells us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
See, it's never, ever been about mere rule-keeping, has it? Even though so many have reduced our faith in Jesus as just doing the do's and abstaining from the don'ts. It seems as though it's the human condition, though, isn't it, to see religion in general as adherence to a set of rules. But God commands that we obey him for a reason, because he knows that we would never volunteer to render trusting obedience to his ways on our own. We're too much into ourselves for this. Isn't that true? Tragically. But he tells us that obedience to his commands is not only a primary way that we show show our love to him, obedience is also for our own good. It really is the best way to live. Can I get a witness on this? What would this world be like if we all, if the world consistently kept just four of the ten words, the ten commandments? There would be very little adultery in our world today, wouldn't there? Or murder, or theft, or a bearing false witness. Is that not a superior way to live than how we, in a nation that began with the Judeo-Christian heritage, live now? And one would think, though, that by reading this book of the law, Deuteronomy, Israel would have gotten it. They would have happily served their Lord for who he is and for all he's done for them. He proved his love and his faithfulness to them time and again. He invited them in so many words, give me your heart. But alas, they did not. Again, the Lord gave them a dire prediction. God knew what would happen to them because, well, he is the Lord who knows everything there is to know about everything, including what's going to happen in the future, because he lives there, just like he lives in the past and just like he lives in the present. See, the Lord lives outside time. And Yahweh foresaw what it would look like when full-blown rebellion happens among his people. It would begin horrifically enough with, with one rebel here and one rebel there. But like sparks applied to dry kindling, a fire would eventually ignite. And the next thing Israel would know is how destructive that fire would be. I mentioned last week and at the end of chapter 29 that This was a sordid tale of God simply keeping his promise, being faithful to himself. He would send his people into exile. People from the nations would see Yahweh's land absolutely devastated. And Moses likened it to the overthrow of Sodom, Gomorrah. So hear now how the pagans will respond to the Lord's faithfulness in carrying out his promises to his people in Deuteronomy 29, verses 24 to 28. You can turn there if you want, back up a little bit. And all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to his land? What caused the heat of his great anger? And the people will say, it's because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. Enter Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. Since the Lord lives in the future, he can see where Israel will be at some point. The Lord will use pagan nations to scatter his people three sheets to the wind. And though it will take some time, devastation is sure to come. 
The Lord will send pagan nations to overrun Israel because of their idolatry, because of their sin. Jeremiah lived several centuries after Moses gave his warnings. He actually witnessed what the Lord predicted and wrote down his horrible experience in Lamentations chapter 2, verses 2 to 6. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them in his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all of its palaces. He has laid in its ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. How tragic Israel betrayed her king. But in the midst of it all, even in the far-flung reaches of the nations where the Lord will scatter them, something will begin to stir within them, and that something is Shuv. Because of Shuv, Israel will find herself not only back in the land, she will experience far more blessings from Yahweh than they ever would have before. An amazing word, this word, Shuv. I mentioned at the beginning of the message that you're going to hear something that you've never heard before, that sin is the best news there is. Well, I'm sure you've never heard of the word shuv either. And so today, you've heard two things that you've never heard before. Aren't you glad you came to corporate worship? See, shuv is a Hebrew word, and the English translation is to turn or to return. Shuv carries with it the idea of repentance. It is even translated as again in some places as in someone returning back to do something once again. Now, we're going to see the word shuv translated as turn or return or again seven times in this passage. As we've been learning in the Bible Fellowship, one good way to understand Scripture is to get a hold of repeated words and phrases. In these 10 verses, shuv is translated in various ways in English is used seven times. You think the Lord's trying to give us a hand here about what's going on? Now, I mentioned that shuv means to turn or to return. And this can go both ways. You know, depending on the context, shuv could mean to turn toward, as in Israel turning toward the Lord in repentance. Or it can mean a turning away from the Lord, that is, apostasy. But there's an amazing dynamic that we're going to see here in this passage for even Yahweh shuvs. Only for him, it's a turning toward his people. And what we will see is a process of how the Lord restores Israel, and it is breathtaking. We're going to see Israel and Yahweh do a little shuving, no less than five times in verses 1 to 8. And shuv is used twice more as sort of a summary statement of the repentance and blessing process between him and his people. And it's going to kind of look like this, truly a delighted Lord and truly blessed people. See, we're going to find another character quality of our great God today. The Lord is so very quick to forgive, to abundantly bless, and to turn toward his people in much greater ways than Israel ever turned toward Yahweh. And so let's begin in verse 1. 
And when all these things shall come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. The first place where shuv is used in this passage is in the phrase call to mind, as in like return the thoughts to you. See, we can put it this way. The Lord knows his people will come to their senses. They will call to their minds the things about their relationship with their God at some point in their dispersal to pagan nations. Notice what this call to mind is about. When the remnant of Israel gets settled in their new nations, there will be a longing on the inside of them. The word mind here is the word heart in the original. They will begin to reflect on how good they had it living in the land before the Lord scattered them. They will think and feel about both the blessing they experienced and the warnings that Yahweh gave them concerning his curse. It's as though they're going to say something like this. You know, we had it so much better with Yahweh as our God. He abundantly blessed us. And yes, he poured out his curse on us. But what can we expect from the Lord? It's we who took back our heart from him. The Lord was simply being faithful to his promise. Now, we were disloyal to him. We were the real jerks in this relationship. In short, the Lord's people would come to their senses. They would long to come back under Yahweh's control, living in the land he promised to give them. And so Israel will recall to mind the ways of the Lord and the relationship she had with him. That's shuv, number one, the first step in the restoration process between Yahweh and Israel. Let's take a look at verse 2. And return the Lord to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Shuv number two was Yahweh through Moses predicting Israel would turn to the Lord, turn back to him in terms of their behavior. They will begin again to live out the ways of Yahweh right where they are in the middle of the pagan nations. And not only they have the household, but the children as well. And I can imagine if we were part of God's people back then, you know, we had scattered among the nations, we would hear something like this as people would say things like, you know, okay, since we've turned back to the Lord, since we've shoved, we'll just pick up where we left off when we were living in the land that Yahweh gave us. So family and friends, let's begin to observe the Sabbath again. Oh, wait. You mean to tell me that they won't let us take Saturdays off to worship Yahweh? That we have a lot of work to do in our captivity in this nation? Really? A bunch of heathens anyway. But certainly as renewed followers of the Lord in this pagan land, we're going to simply avoid bowing down in worship to their idols. No problem there. Wait, you mean that we must bow the knee to their idols or we're going to die? Even our kids? And can't we be exempt from eating the pork chops that our captors give us as food? The Lord said we're not allowed to eat that. Tough going here. Well, the point is that the ways of Yahweh would be countercultural in the nations to which he will scatter them. See, Moses emphasized this counterculturalness to Israel time and time again when he taught them the Torah. The ways of the Lord are not the ways of the nations. So in order for Shuv number two to happen, the scattered people of Israel were to commit themselves to radical, countercultural obedience in front of the pagans. And it can be done. 
ask Esther. Under the threat of death, she could not approach the king unless her bid, unless he bid her to come. She was not allowed to initiate. Ask Daniel and Azariah and Hananiah and Mishael. We know those three guys as what? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But that's their pagan names. Because Daniel refused to get up off his knees in prayer to the Lord after it became illegal to pray to anybody else except for the pagan king, he had an all-night encounter with the lions. But God was with him. Because the three young men refused to get on their knees at the sound of the music and the sight of Nebuchadnezzar's statue, they were thrown in the furnace. But the Lord was with them. Truly, things will get a bit more difficult living in pagan lands when it comes to being Yahweh's witness. If they were going to shuv number two, they would have to pay a price. But for those who have truly trusted the Lord and turned to him, any price is worth it. Do you agree? The Lord predicted Israel would pay the price for turning away from him. And shuv number two represents the cost Israel must pay to return to him. Well, we've seen shuv number one and shuv number two. Israel is to call to mind the ways of the Lord and then live them out even though they were living on foreign soil. Now let's look at shuv number three and four, both found in verse three. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Notice in this verse who does the shuving. It's the Lord. See, when Israel turns to the Lord, the Lord will turn to Israel. And he will do this in two ways. First, he will restore your fortunes. That's where this word shuv is. As in return what he took from them when he expelled them from the land. That's shuv number three. And second, he will again gather his people from wherever they are. And that's shuv number four. And bring them back to the land. Now, if all that the Lord did in his shuving was to bring Israel back to the land. That would be enough, wouldn't it? But there is far more here. Let's walk through the doorway of the Lord's treasure house of blessings because the Lord turned to them. He shooed them in verse 4. Beginning, he says, if your outcasts are in the uttermost part of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will take you. What's he saying in so many words? He says, I've not abandoned you. I know exactly where you are. I'm keeping track of your whereabouts. I'm watching you, waiting for you to turn to me. And at the very moment that you shove toward me, I'm going to shove toward you. What a lesson for all of us. The Lord wants us with him. Notice again, he will bring back into the fellowship every one of his people who turn to him, even the most insignificant ones even if you think you're the most insignificant one. The parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15 comes to mind. Look at verse 5. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more numerous and prosperous than your fathers. Look how wide open is the Lord's reception of his people. Remember where we are in the story. The Lord will scatter his people because of Israel's betrayal of their king is so heinous. But when Israel returns to the Lord in their heart and behavior, what does he do? He springs into action. And the result is 
even more blessings than before. The eternal truth is the Lord is far more willing to forgive and restore us than we are willing to receive it. Isn't that true? We so often think that the Lord is some sort of a tyrant that we need to grovel in front of. And when we have sufficiently beat ourselves up, only then we feel that we're allowed to go back to him. Is that not what we're tempted to think? Or is that not what we often do, how we act before the Lord? Somehow think that the Lord doesn't want us, that he's not going to be merciful to us, and we have to punish ourselves first. That's not so. But his mercy and reception of his people unto himself is so much wider than that. Yahweh restores. He receives back those who shoot. And there's more. Verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Part of the Lord's shooting is that he will establish the new covenant with his people. He will perform heart surgery on them. He will cut away the deadness, not only of their heart, but also the hearts of their kids too. Now, all of us who've had surgery, we understand what going under the knife means. The highly skilled surgeon cuts away what's not supposed to be there or fixes what's under the surface. And should things go as planned, the result is a renewal of things. In the same sort of way, the Lord will take away all that prevents Yahweh's people from really loving him to joyfully obey him. The Lord will arrange things so his people will be able to love him with all of their hearts. The Lord will empower them to wholeheartedly live out his ways. But notice the last part of verse 6. So that you may live. See, this does not pertain to a mere prolonging of life, physical life. This is akin to what the Lord Jesus said in John 10.10. He says, I came that they might have life. They might have it more abundantly. Overflowing life. Really enjoying the life the Lord gives regardless of the circumstances. Even if circumstances are horrendous. And I have a strong suspicion that if we were to ask any of our persecuted brothers and sisters if they consider living for Jesus as worth the cost, even though they go through pain and suffering, they will say yes. Even if they have loved ones who suffered martyrdom, they will say in a harpy, is so well worth it. Richard Wormbrand, founder of what became the ministry Voice of the Martyrs, had very challenging stories in his book, Torture for Christ. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's just amazing. He experienced great suffering in his many years in prison for simply and powerfully proclaiming the name of Jesus. Here's one of his stories. It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners as it is in captive nations today. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everybody was happy. No one can withstand the kinds of things Richard Wormbrandt and his brothers went through unless the Lord had given them true, abundant life. Would you agree with this? And this is the kind of change that occurs when the Lord circumcises the hearts of his people so they can really live. So now let me briefly touch on verse 7. 
And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. Not only does the Lord know exactly where each of his people are, he keeps a record of all those who persecute them. And though things were terrible for the Lord's people under the iron boot of Assyria and then Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome and even today in all the nations that are hostile to the gospel, the Lord knows and keeps track of all of this in his way and in his timing. He has a way of paying back all who persecute his people. The bottom line here is those who shove, those who return to the Lord, lose the curses. But now notice in verse 8, because Israel is about ready to shove again. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord your God and keep all his commandments that I command you today. This is shove number 5, where Israel, now back in the land, now having experienced Yahweh's restored blessings and provision, having now received a new heart, turn once again to living a life pleasing to the Lord. Only now, it's even better. See, for Israel, we'll have known now what it's like to have rebelled against the Lord. They will have experienced the Lord's faithful, chastening hand. And with a renewed sense of gratitude, which is where the Lord wanted his people to be all along anyway, they will live their lives in loyalty to their king. And because Israel will have been restored because of what I call mutual shovings between them and Yahweh, super abundant blessings will be poured out on his people. The far and away more satisfying and significant is a summary statement, which includes shuv number six, where the Lord turns toward Israel once again. And the shoving is one where he will take delight in prospering his people. Remember a couple chapters ago, the Lord says, as I took delight before in blessing you because you have disobeyed me, you live in rebellion, I'm going to take delight now in punishing you and destroying you. He now is turned again because of their love and obedience and restoration. He wants to delight in them again to prosper them. And finally, in Shub number seven, we have Israel living ever more loyally to the Lord by keeping all the commandments and statutes that are written in Deuteronomy, this book of the law, literally the Torah. So we can sum up the relationship between Yahweh and his people this way, a delighted Lord, a blessed people. Isn't that amazing? So as with any portion of scripture, who's the hero? God is. Who takes center stage in every teaching? The Lord. So what can we say here about Yahweh in this incredible portion of scripture? He's beyond marvelous. The Lord is ever ready to forgive, to restore, and to turn to his people. And speaking of turning, I would like for us to see a New Testament parallel, an application of the Lord's superabundant blessings. Blessings which are the result of a mutual turning uh, of the Lord toward his people and the Lord's people toward him. So let's turn in Luke 15, verses 11 through 32, the parable of the prodigal son. We're not going to read it verse by verse due to lack of time because the clock is so unkind to us. But let me simply point out our passage today and how the parable dovetails almost perfectly with what we just heard today in Deuteronomy 30. But first, a little context. Jesus didn't tell his parables just to entertain people. He didn't tell these parables to make himself popular as a public speaker. As one who possessed divine wisdom in truckloads, the Lord Jesus 
usually told his parables in answer to a question or in its response to an accusation against him. In this case, it was an accusation the Pharisees and the scribes attempted to pin on Jesus. If we look at chapter 15 of Luke, verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners of all people and eats with them. This holy man, for he claims to be a holy man according to them. Apparently, this greatly bothered the Lord, so much so that he responded by telling not just one parable, not just two parables, but three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. We call this the prodigal son. And he saved his most powerful point until last. Each of these parables was a rebuke to the Pharisees and the scribes. The point of the parable of the lost sheep is the joy in heaven over even one sinner who repents rather than over the 99 who need no repentance. Again, he's attacking the Pharisees. In reality, those people need repentance, but they didn't think so. The point of the lost coin is the same. The lost coin that is found is cause of great joy. Listen up, Pharisees. Take a lesson on how I handle these precious souls, says Jesus. The prodigal son is where Jesus reserves the most powerful rebuke to the Pharisees and the scribes. And we know the story, don't we? A man has two sons. The younger son demands his father give him his inheritance before his father dies. And that's tantamount to saying, I don't want to wait till you die. I want it now. I want what's coming to me right now. Amazingly, the father does this. The son goes off and he squanders his inheritance. And here is the parallel between this and Deuteronomy 30. The Lord predicted that Israel would squander her blessings. And though what Israel had was so good at home, they thought it best to serve other gods, spending what Yahweh graciously gave them on their idolatry. The parable continues. When the son squandered away all he had, a severe famine hit the land. The son came upon really hard times. It was so hard, in fact, this Jewish young man even pronounced curses on himself by living and eating with, wait for it, the pigs. Jews weren't supposed to do this, right? (laughs) Things were so terrible for him that he wanted to eat what the pigs ate. Luke 15, 16 says, and no one gave him anything. The parallel ought to be obvious. Israel was in captivity. No one would help them. They lived in severe circumstances. Now look at Luke 15, 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Here's the parallel. Israel would remember the words of the blessing and the curse In Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, in captivity, Israel would call to mind that they had it so much better when Yahweh was in charge of them and they were living in the land. In the days when Yahweh protected and provided for them. But now, where were they? Perishing with hunger. Wanting to eat the pig slop offered to them by the pagans. Luke 15, 18 to 20 says, And the son rehearses his lines of what he will say to the father, in summary. In his estimation, he was no longer worthy to be treated as a son. He just wants to be treated as a hired servant. And so he gets up and he goes home. Here's a parallel. In captivity, Israel will show that she has changed. 
no longer slaves to their sin. They will no longer desire to eat the pig slop of the nations. They rise up as changed people. Luke 15, 20. The father has been watching and waiting for his prodigal. Well, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. In the culture of Jesus, day, older men just did not do that. They didn't run anywhere. They didn't lift up their robes to run because that was too undignified. But not this dad. He threw all sense of what was proper for a man in his position out the window, and he ran to his son. And notice how the father treats his son. The son confesses his unworthiness over what he did. He gave his father his, his, uh, his rehearsed lines. But you know what his dad did? Ignored him. <laughs> he didn't even pay attention to what his son told him. The father was too busy making preparations to bless the boy. Now that the son turned back to the father, what did the father do? Blessed him abundantly. The best robe, a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, and let's celebrate. Another obvious parallel here. Because Israel turned to the Lord, the Lord now showered his people with abundant blessings. Now notice what the father said in Luke 15, 24. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found, and they began to celebrate. This is not a perfect picture of what we saw earlier in what I labeled as Shuv 6 and 7, a delighted father, a blessed son. But the parable does not end there. The point of the parable was Jesus was building up in his rebuke to the Pharisees and the scribes of their own bitterness, their self-righteousness, their unforgiveness, and so much more. The Pharisees were the elder brother depicted in the parable. The elder brother, as it continues, was incensed that his father received back his younger brother. So angry, he referred to his younger sibling as the son of yours. He couldn't even call him his brother. But how does the parable end? Verse 32 in Luke 15. The father says to the elder brother, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. Notice how the father refers to the prodigal. Not my son, but your brother. Tragically, there's no indication that the elder brother joined in the celebration. Did the Pharisees accept the tax collectors and the sinners after Jesus called them out and rebuked them? Probably not. But what I find here is a common thread for both brothers. Apparently, neither one of them treasured their father. They treasured his father's, their father's things. With the younger brother, he would not wait till his dad was dead to enjoy his gifts. And what did the elder brother focus on in all of his bitterness over his younger brother? Dad, you never gave me a goat so I could party with my friends. The elder brother's concern was not over the profound shame that his younger brother brought on the family and on his father. By the way, he squandered his inheritance. The focus was on how his younger brother devoured the property. And so what does this parable and Deuteronomy 31 to 10 do for us today? It helps us to see how great and glorious and forgiving God is. Against the dark backdrop of our sin and wickedness, the Father is so quick to restore us, to receive us back into his fellowship. 
And he will do all kinds of things to bring us to the point where we will shuv. Turn to him. And when we do, the father shuvs back. James tells us plainly in 4.8, and we're, we're talking about this on Wednesday nights. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is mutual shoving in a nutshell. And so as I land the plane today, let me ask, in what area or areas are you deficient in your thinking or in your affections toward our great and awesome God? Let me give you a couple points to ponder. First, how do you see the Lord when you sin against him grievously? and you violate your own conscience besides. Is he a hard deity to you? Where if you don't perfectly toe the line, he's ready to severely punish you? Or maybe you see him as one who's already, he's already done with you. He's already put you on the shelf permanently. He's written you off because you've sinned too much, or the sin that you continue to struggle with is unforgivable in your eyes. Or perhaps you see our good and gracious God is overly harsh because of all the things he's allowed you to experience in your life. But what does the scripture say? God is good. He chastens us for our good that we might share his holiness. As a compassionate father, our heavenly father watches, waits for us to return, to come to our senses, to shove. And when we do, he runs to us and he greatly blesses us with superabundant blessings. When we shove, he shoves too. Lord, we thank you so much that you provided a way to forgive us. Lord, you don't forgive us just because you're nice. You forgive us because you're just, because you sent your son and you allowed him to hang on the cross for us. And upon him, Lord, all of our sins were placed and he said, it's finished, paid in full. And because of that, that was paid, we can now approach you. And we can approach you with confidence that you will receive us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great love for us. We thank you, Lord, that you proclaim truth. We thank you, Lord, for the parable of the prodigal son and how the, the father who uh, was depicted here as the heavenly, the heavenly father depicted as the father who was who was so undignified, as it were, came and ran to his son. Lord, the indignity of the cross is amazing. It is is unspeakable. But Lord, you have done this. And it it required the death of your son to pay for our sins. So we we praise you. We, we, We don't understand it. But we accept it. And in gratitude, Lord, We want to live out your ways. I thank you. I praise you. Thank you for my brothers and sisters today that we were able to share together in worship. And Lord, now as we do turn our attention to our giving and also to another song as we close out the service, Lord, that we pray that you will help us to to do these two acts of worship, indeed as worship to you. Because Lord, you alone are worthy. We pray that you will accept our worship. worship Our worship of you will be acceptable in your sight. And we will thank you for what you've done. We'll thank you for what you do here in Jesus' name.